Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Uh, Thank you for hanging in there with me on the volume. I've been getting some um, concerns about the volume, so we're working on that. Um, I'm trying to speak up and make sure my volume's higher. We've got a new soundboard, so thanks for hanging in there with some technical issues. Uh, My guest on today's podcast is my friend Julie Lee. As background, we're going to talk about Julie Lee's new book coming out called I See You, How Compassion and Connection Save Lives. The forward by this book is by Tim Ballard, and it's just a great book. Um, We'll talk about where to find it. Um, You can go to julieleespeaks.com. The book will officially be released on September 8th, but you can order it now. Julie Lee has been on the podcast before. You could check out episode 95. And she is um, just a wonderful woman with doing lots of excellent things. She's a speaker. She's an author. She's a podcaster. Um, She's done about 85 episodes of her podcast, which is called the same as her book, I See You. She's a wife, um, a mother of two kids, lives in Utah County, and just an outstanding Latter-day Saint doing wonderful things. Welcome to the podcast, Julie. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. We offered a prayer before we started. Um, We just hope that the things that Julie will share with our listeners will help you um, and connect more with her her book. I encourage all of our listeners to buy her book, share it. It'll help you. Let's talk, before we talk about the book, and I have not read the book yet, but you've got a copy here in our home, and it's got a beautiful cover. Talk about your decision to write the book. You know, I'd like to say it was in my plan, but it really wasn't. I woke up at 5.30 a.m. in the month of January, just barely, and I woke up and I wrote a for, excuse me, not a for, an introduction to a book called I See You, and then I just kind of set that aside and thought, well, that was, that was kind of strange. And um, a couple weeks later, I was added on Facebook by the the president of the publishing company that I went through, and it just felt like a sign. So it was just kind of one step at a time. I set up a meeting with him and took in the introduction that I'd written at 530 in the morning, and it just, things kind of fell into place, and it was, it was meant to be. It just felt right. So this is January of 2020. Yeah. And you're sitting here with a printed book in late August of 2020. Yeah. That is crazy fast. It's wild. Yeah. It's been a wild ride. It's been crazy. <laughs> Talk about this I See You. That's really your one of your handles. That's the name of your podcast. And as long as I've known you, you've talked about that phrase. You've got a bracelet we can talk about. It's the name of your book. Just help our listeners understand the thinking behind that phrase. In my early 20s, I started struggling with some pretty severe mental health issues with depression, with anxiety, suicide ideations, uh, PTSD-like symptoms. I think you could say nightmares, flashbacks, the whole run, um, all through my 20s. And I know it was the compassion and connection of other people that saved my life over and over again. And being the the bubbly, outgoing, happy, hardworking person that I was, I tried to work myself out of those mental issues. But it was it was the relationships around me that were willing me to see me at, at rock bottom that really saved my life multiple times. And I feel compelled to share that with other people that that's the antidote we need to isolation as as suicides and as mental illness and disconnection and isolation is all on the rise. I really believe this is the antidote. This is the antidote. Therapy, medication, I use all of those things and those are really helpful and they have a really important place in my life and in the lives of so many I know that struggle, but there is nothing in this world that can replace the human compassion and connection of another person saying, I see you, I'm with you, we're going to get through this. There's nothing that I found that can replace that. How are you doing? Thanks for being so honest. Um, Always. <laughs> uh, that's part of who you are, and I think why people are drawn to you, Julie. Talk about how you're doing now as I'm, far as your mental health and emotional health. Yeah, I'm doing really, really well. And what's interesting is it took me so long to accept that I was probably always going to be susceptible to anxiety and depression. 
it took me so long to accept that because I grew up and I, I think I speak a little bit of this to this in episode 95. So I don't want to be too repetitive, but I grew up with a father who was diagnosed with bipolar when I was a young kid. And so I experienced and watched a lot of that unravel in a family at a time when mental illness was not talked about and it was a very shameful thing. And so when I left that house, I loved my parents dearly, but I was also really excited to start a new chapter where, you know, I never wanted to say the word depression again. So for that to happen to me was very, uh, it was, it felt like my personal hell, like nothing worse could have happened in my life than for me to start struggling. So my first panic attack was when I was 21 and I, you know, I'd get on medication and I'd get off as soon as I could and I'd get in therapy and I'd get off. And then it wasn't until I got into a really good childhood trauma therapist when I was about 24 that I think I started experiencing some real healing. And once again, though, I was just so ready to have it behind me. And so I got off medication again. And it was when I was 27. In fact, the book, the book is a self-help leadership book. And I do share some experiences in there of my own. I try not to make it too much of a memoir because that's just not what it's meant for. But the book does open with a scene from me when I'm 27 laying on the bathroom floor and begging to be healed. It was that year that I really came to understand that I was not going to be healed in the way that I had wanted to be, which was to avoid all of this completely, but that I was going to do it through Christ and that I was going to use medication probably permanently and that I was probably going to you know, have maintenance therapy probably permanently. And it wasn't until I did that, that I've experienced the kind of true peace and the complete reliance on the savior that I have. And it's not a bad gig. It's not a bad gig. It's, it's daily bread. I love that idea of daily bread and I'm really happy and I'm really proud of my life. And that is the miracle that's come from all of the, this, you have all the people that helped me through that, but also just the fact that I can sit here and love myself as much as I do and that I can be so comfortable to talk about mental health issues, which I have a background where I felt a lot of shame about and saw a lot of tragedy in, a lot of trauma from my experiences as a kid. The fact that I can sit here and talk about it and not only talk about it, but even share a little bit in a book that's the miracle of Christ and his atonement. And it's something that I continue to draw upon, but I'm doing really great. I'm really happy. I have a really good, peaceful life. And it doesn't mean that I don't struggle and I don't have to still rewire certain thought patterns that I have, but I'm at peace with that. I'm okay with that. I love that. Tell our listeners roughly how old you are. I don't know if I'm going to give your age or just your age range, just so they can understand how far how long ago that was. Oh, I don't mind. I'm 30 years old. Okay. I'm 30 years old. So this was really five, six years ago. Pretty 20, recent. no, 27 was when it was, was that so summer. This is pretty recent. Then, yeah. So years. it's been, let's see what's, it's August. It's been about three years since my last really bad, scary episode that lasted for about four months wow. when I was asking my husband to take me to the hospital and just check me in, you know? Were you married during this whole time or did you get married during this time? I was married before. Yep. I was, I was a young, young married girl. I got married when I was 19, right after my sophomore year of college. And it was about a year and a half into our marriage. I turned, I was 21 when it first started. I love, there's a few things. I just love everything you said, Julie, (laughs) but, um, maintenance therapy. I don't know if I've heard that term before, but I just love the way you just destigmatize that the way you just factually said that without any shame around that. You just said, I'm going to have maintenance therapy and I'm, and I'm going to have medication. And I think you said for the rest of my life. And I just love the way you recognize that's part of your journey in mortality. And you're not going to, there was no shame around what you just said. And Jesus, you also talked about our savior, Jesus. I kind of like Jesus. <laughs> he's kind of, he's kind of great. And I remember a coffee cup I saw on Twitter. It said, you, we need Jesus and a therapist. And sometimes I, I just love that you need both, really all three, a therapist, medication, and Jesus. Um, and not everybody may need a medication and a therapist, but I think a lot do. 
So I just love the way you destigmatize that, de-shame that, and just said, this is part of my journey. Well, you know, and I had an experience during that summer when I was crying in the middle of the night because I couldn't sleep. Anxiety would make it very challenging for me to get very much sleep. And I don't know, 2.30 in the morning, crying, just begging God, what haven't I done? What have I not done? I've done everything I thought you'd asked. I'm reading my scriptures daily. I'm fasting. I'm asking other people to fast for me. I'm, I'm doing all, I'm visiting the temple twice a week sometimes. What have I possibly not done? And at a time when you're in a deep hole of depression, I, I don't want to speak for everyone, but I've heard this quite commonly. It's really challenging to feel the spirit, really challenging. And it's very easy to question, I think, the existence of a higher power, at least it has been for me. And I very distinctly had a phrase come into my mind and it didn't come with a warm rushing feeling, but it was very clear and it was go to your doctor. And that was what I was missing was that I was not taking care of my medical need. And I just had enough people, a professional therapist, professional doctor, enough people say, look, we, we have rarely seen someone do and do and do as much as you're doing to have control over this and not see the kind of success you should be seeing. And that was when I opened my mind to maybe some permanent medication. And if, if there comes a point in my life where I feel from Heavenly Father, that the right answer is to get off, then that's great. But he's going to have to pull it out of my hands because because what's important is my family. That's what I have stewardship over is my two little babies. They're not babies anymore. They're five and four. But, you know, being in a place where I was looking at them and they were much littler, playing on the floor and feeling totally incapable to care for them, you kind of you're reminded what matters and what doesn't. I'm struck with, we haven't done a few, we haven't done, I'm remembering your podcast now and just others that have come on and all the things that are light bulb things that I've learned from listeners that have been on your road, but this idea that emotional health or, um, I don't know if to call it emotional or mental, you could help me coach me on the right vocabularies, but anyway, is not a spiritual weakness and doesn't get solved then through increased spiritual behavior and tools, those are just two different things. And often, and then your point, we don't feel the spirit sometimes. If there's missing chemicals in our brain or our body that I think are required at times to feel right, including feel the spirit, if we think, well, I can't feel the spirit, this must be a spiritual weakness. And so you become almost hyper-religious or hyper-spiritual in a way to correct what is actually an emotional illness or situation that needs to be corrected or dealt with, corrected, I'm not sure that's the right word, um, with therapy and or medication, then you're on the path to healing. Any thoughts on that? Well, I've absolutely seen other people do that, and that's exactly what I did. And I've heard so many, especially LGBT brothers and sisters, talk about that, right? If they go on their mission, then they'll, you know, they'll be straight when they come home. And that's just not how these things work. And I don't mean to say that mental health and sexual orientation are the same, but they're... Yeah, but neither are spiritual weakness. Right. (laughs) Neither are that. Yes. And there's some really organic things about, about both of those things. And I would just drive that home that, you know, you can have all the faith in the world and still not be cured from cancer. I don't think mental illness is any different. I think there are so many things that we can do to help our mental health. And like you said, some people, they don't need medication because there are behaviors and habits that they can create that is enough for what they need. But some of us, it just doesn't work that way. And we can spend our whole lives asking why. I, I still fall into that ditch every once in a while of, is it my biology? Is it, my, is it the trauma, you know, growing up? Is it that I'm just, you know, I didn't work out quite hard enough today and quite get enough endorphins or am I eating too much sugar? We can go in circles forever about that. And I've never gotten that answer for myself. And I would guess that it's a combination of a lot of things, but man, I'm sure trying. And I just think that with everything I know about God's character and about Christ's character, I don't think I'm just missing something here. The lesson I've been taught by them is that the answer to that question doesn't matter. 
that they're really concerned about how I feel about myself and how I feel about other people and my ability to help other people. And for me, yeah, I'm going to need to use some of those resources because I have a, I have a stewardship to keep. I, I made covenants. I made covenants before I came here of what I would do. And that's where it's led me to draw on those resources to be able to, to be the powerful being that I'm meant and need to be as we all do. I love that. I love your age too. You're pretty young. (laughs) I am kind of a baby. You're like 30 years younger than me. And I just look at where you are at this point of your life and your ability to help and heal and bring hope to so many, including your own kids and some of the paydays that you'll have down the road because you understand this space and you're talking about it and writing about it and, and started a podcast. Share with our listeners um, how long it took to write a book. So here you are um, at 5.30 in the morning writing an introduction to a book. How long did it take to write it? So I was sent a contract after they looked at the introduction and a table of contents. And I, I want to be careful about this because I know a lot of people that have tried to get published and it is a rigorous, tough thing to do. It can be really hard. And so I feel very blessed that mine came about the way it did. Um, and I would, I would direct that to God. I don't know why things happen the way they do, but I feel very blessed to be in the position I am. So I was in my contract. They, they said, can you finish this book by June 1st? And that was, I think the beginning of February. So I had three and a half months to write this book and it was a lot of prayer. And I said, yes, of course I can do that. You know, absolutely. And it was a lot of prayer and a lot of frozen pizza And my husband, you know, pulling extra hours as a dad, you know, not getting a lot of breaks between his job and taking care of the kids at night, but we did it. And I feel, I feel really good about it. I feel really good about it. And I feel like, I don't know if I'd recommend that to everyone, but I think that's just how this situation was meant to be. In fact, I heard a speech recently from someone that talks to people about how to be a good speaker. And she made some comment. And, and mind you, I've just sent my manuscript to the publisher and she makes some comment about how we all should write a book. And she said, and now I'm not talking about the book, you know, that you write in like three to six months. That one you'll be embarrassed about. I'm talking about the book that, you know, and I'm just sitting there and I'm like, oh my gosh, what have I done? <laughs> but, you know, it is what it is. And I think that it turned out to be pretty special. And I think I had a lot of help writing it. I feel I very grateful. I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, Tell our listeners who your publisher is. Cedar Fort Publishing and Media, which is yours as well, yeah, right? <laughs> my publisher too, and great publisher. Um, mm-hmm. The crew there is doing great work. And uh, talk. Let's talk a little bit about the book. Um, but I come back to your the title of the book is "I See You." But I just help our listeners. These words that you chose as your subhead or or whatever they're. All, how compassion and connection save lives. Um, just talk about, because I assume that those, those words are very meaningful to you in your own personal stories you've referenced and very central to the book. I think there are so many things going on today that show us that people need to feel seen. And when I say seen, I mean looked it in the face, touched on the shoulder, being present with someone, especially when it's uncomfortable sometimes for us and being able to recognize someone else's pain without comparison. I think we're seeing a lot of need for that. And I think it's created a lot of opportunities for us as a culture to really reach out and, and look at each other in the face as human beings And not as, labels as, you know, it's so easy to to get into that, what I like to call black and white thinking where, you know, these people are good, those people are bad, these people are this way, those people are this way. And I think that we really dehumanize people when we do that. But to be able to see someone like you're doing on this podcast where we each all have our individual stories, and I think you see us, right? You see you see each individual person come in with their unique combination of background, of biology, of all those things we talk about. And it, it creates this beautiful, complicated human being. 
And to be able to recognize that in each individual we meet is a powerful thing that I think we should all be working towards. And if we're to do that, if we are willing to just sit and listen and not make it about us, make it about the person in front of us, I really think that we will see see all kinds of wounds heal and that there'll be greater space for everybody's, everybody's pain, everybody's joy as we take that comparison out of it. Because I know for me, the people that have really seen me through some pretty dark, intense times, they, the love that they had for me was not conditional based on whether they felt like their experience had been harder or whether they wondered if I was trying enough. They saw I was suffering and suffering is suffering is suffering. And so they loved me. They loved me out of it. And I think that that's what we need. That's what we need for each other. You're giving me a thumbs up. I think you agree. <laughs> I am. I hope, yeah, I am giving Julie a thumbs up because I just love what she's sharing and and what she's teaching us. And as I've said in other podcasts about this subject, what Julie's sharing with us, we all can do. That wasn't. That was so healing for you, but not awfully complicated if we just develop the discipline to do what you just suggested we do. Um, but it, I think it does take discipline and mental engagement and and just skill to not sort of do the things that we might normally do, like shift the conversation. I know when somebody recently um, told somebody else they had a dear loved one that had cancer and was kind of opening up with that pain, the person that I was aware of that took that conversation and and then sort of opened the door to talk about the people in her family or his family that had cancer. And it was a missed opportunity to sort of stay with that person and as she opened up or he opened up about this recent family diagnosis. And I do that at times where I pivot when someone brings up something, but it takes a little more discipline to not pivot. And you can eventually pivot, but I think you need to stay first with the person that, that needs you to be with them as they're processing something with you and trusting you. Let's talk about some of the sections of the book. Let's keep talking about black and white thinking. You mentioned that, but talk about why that's part of the book. In my experience, black and white thinking is like I said, when I'm able to look at a person or a situation and slap a label on it, good or bad, mean or nice, just make it quick and simple. And it makes, there's almost a safety that comes from black and white thinking, because if I can see someone that has an outcome, I don't want, if I'm able to look at it and say, Oh, well, it's because they did this, or it's because they are this way, then it kind of keeps me feeling safe because I then know that if I don't do such and such, I'll never get there. Um, if I, if I, have someone yell at me on the road and I come home and just say, that guy's just a jerk. Then I I'm in a way I'm raising myself above, above him. Right now, certainly I can look at behavior and say, that's not good behavior or that's unkind behavior. But I think when we start labeling people as jerk, bad, even just I don't know. I think there's, I think there's a problem there. And I think it's, it's a part of natural man pride to then say, well, I'm not like that. And it's just easy to see things clearly in black and white, because what's a little more uncomfortable is to see things. What I like to say to see it in color, which is so much more complex and to see the situation that that person might be coming from, because it's so he, it's just so easy to hate people when you're far away from them. But when you get close up, that compassion comes when you, that's why I love the pairing of compassion and connection, because when you connect with someone, usually that compassion is just as a byproduct going to come. And so if I'm able to visualize in my mind what that driver, why they might be mad that day, and you can call it a mental trick, you know, that I always picture like, Oh, they've just come from the hospital, you know, where someone's passed away or that, you know, you can call it whatever, but it makes me feel more unified to the human beings around me to recognize that there's probably a little more color in that situation than I understand. 
and that I don't need to worry about putting a label on them, that I can just have compassion for them while still recognizing that I would like to behave differently when I get stressed out. I think there's a way to see in color and to see the complexities of mankind and not make it quite so black and white. And then in the book, I take it a step further you know, I've thought about this a lot and I thought about, I think there's a, a new level. I think there's a next level. I think it goes, it's like the TV, it goes black and white and then it went to color and then it went to high definition. And to me, high definition is not only recognizing the complicated circumstances that they might be experiencing, but it's being able to see that person and see the strengths they have to offer. Now, in a run-in with a driver, I don't always have that opportunity, but certainly there are so many people around me that I see that I can make quick judgments about. But if I switch and I start trying to think in color and look at their circumstances and look at why they might be behaving the way they are, and then if I can look in high definition and see what are their strengths and how does it benefit my life and how does it benefit the world, I think that's high definition people. And I think that is the epitome of seeing people all around you, seeing them as they are created to be with all of the things they have to offer. And it doesn't mean they don't make mistakes, but that's not where my attention is. My attention is on the light that is coming from them, all the good that they have to offer. And like you said, it, it seems simple. It's, it's not a hard, it's not a hard thing to understand, but sometimes it's a, it's not an intuitive choice to make. We just aren't bred that way for some reason. And I think part of that is overcoming the natural man. But I think that not only is it the right choice, when I am really putting that into practice, my life, I am so much happier. And it's like my life is opened up to a grander view of God and of my fellow human beings than I've ever had before. And it's worth it. It's worth it. My quality of life is so much higher. And I'm so happy to get up in the morning. Whereas when I'm critical of other people, I'm usually being pretty critical of myself inside. When I'm super black and white about other people, I'm thinking about myself super black and white. I'm stupid. I'm being lazy. I, you know, all these name calling these labels, it doesn't get us anywhere we want to be, right? One time I was in the temple and I was going to the temple struggling with kind of just my my part in the world. And as I was making parts of my journey in my life a little bit more public, and I was trying to decide how I wanted to handle some things, if I wanted to do it at all, and just having a lot of doubt in myself. And the experience I had in the temple was, I just had this feeling of like, Julie, you are so awesome. You are amazing. And I felt that so strongly that I am powerful and I'm amazing. And then the message I felt right after, immediately after was, and so was everybody else. And that I didn't need to worry about becoming prideful by showing my talents, by sharing them. The problem comes when you start not noticing how amazing other people are and that everybody has that ability and that mission to be incredible. And that I don't need to be afraid to share my light I just need to make sure that I'm always remembering and, and trying to amplify that in other people too, because we got to give each other permission to do that. I think sometimes we think it's noble to be hard on ourselves and it's just not the case. I think that's one of Satan's biggest lies. I really love that segment. Are there things in the, in Jesus's uh, ministry that or parables or stories in the Bible or the book of Mormon that resonate with you that, um, are kind of in this area of not black and white thinking or seeing color or high definition? Well, the story that comes to mind is one that I actually do share in the book. It's not an LDS audience that I wrote to, just like my podcast, but I do. I mean, God comes up in this kind of conversation for me. He's a big part of my life. This, the parable I think of is the woman with the issue of blood. Because when I talk about that bathroom on the floor moment, that's what I, I was asking for God to come so that I could touch his robe specifically. And he didn't come and there wasn't healing yet. So I didn't have it quite like that woman right there. I had to wait a little longer, which she had to wait 12 years. That's a long time. But that doesn't fit in a neat, nice 
box or in black and white thinking that she was, I think she was giving honest effort for a long time to find a cure for this. And that's a long time to wait. Just like other people, you know, we all have to wait for things. We all feel lost, especially right now during COVID. In the book, I also share a later point when I was sitting in my kitchen with my journal writing um, as a therapeutic process when I was during that summer in 2017. And because of my past experiences, I've been very careful to try to shield my kids from any of my suffering, even as little toddlers, because I know how that can affect their development. I was in the kitchen and I was writing and the tears were just streaming down and making my paper all wet. And my little boy was two at the time. He's my oldest. And he walked by and he started trying to say something to me. And I had kind of tuned him out and I was trying to wipe away my face so he wouldn't see. And I said, I just said, Sam, what, what? And he just looked at me and he'd never said these words before. It's something I told him often. And he just looked at me and said, mom, Jesus loves you. And then he just toddled away. And, you know, you could say, well, you used to hold him up by a picture and point to Jesus and say, Sam, Jesus loves you. But in that moment, I knew that was a moment of healing. That doesn't mean all my mental struggles went away, but I knew that I was seeing that someone was seeing me. And it was as if God was saying to me, I see you. I see you at that table crying, trying to shield your face from your kids, doing everything you possibly can. I see you right now and I need you to know it. So I'm going to have your two-year-old son say it, who has a hard time putting sentences together. And so I think of the woman of the issue of blood because that's kind of where it began for me. That's the kind of healing I wanted. But it became my own story, but one that Jesus was just as present. I love your answer. I love, we've never talked about the woman with an issue of blood in, in this podcast series. That's never come up. That's a great story. And I didn't realize it was 12 years. I think so. I hope so. Well, I'm pretty sure. I think we all, yeah, we're going with that. I don't <laughs> think it changes the story of some of our listeners. Somebody finds a slightly different interpretation. I, so we'll go with that. And the story's important. I love that. Uh, I was reading a book, I believe, by Brene Brown, and she came. She talked about this phrase, you're either for us or you're against us. And she taught me to see that a phrase I've been very comfortable with in a different light. I don't know if you're familiar with that, her thoughts on that, or if you have any thoughts on that, or if I should just share what I learned about that. Oh, I am like Brene's biggest fan. I don't know. Maybe you're a pretty big one. No. I think we all we all want to be, right? Do you no, go some, ahead. Go well, ahead and share. I can share after you share. Just that that sort of, I, she sort of talked about that being black and white thinking. And I recognized with the examples she used, and I can't remember the examples now, that that at times can be um, limit my ability to see color. I love your idea of color and even high definition. And that's sort of, you're either for us or against us, binary black and white thinking at times is, is not helpful. And I recognize that I don't need to compromise any of my principles or sell out any of my beliefs or values or commitments to things I'm committed to, to have a little more nuance than you're either for us or you're against us. So go with it from there, Julie. Well, I totally agree. I think that I've been thinking a lot about this idea of period. I was thinking about it yesterday in the shower and as I was getting dressed, it just kept coming back to me, period, in that sometimes what lacks compassion, I think, is the but or the and when we need to just say, I'm sorry, period, or I'm with you, period. And I think that period is really important and meaningful that everybody gets to have their day. Richard, you get to hurt. You're allowed to feel pain, period. And it can just hurt for you. And something the next, you know, your neighbor next door gets to feel pain, period. And it's, we can just have empathy and compassion for them. And that we don't need to compare pain besides the fact that it's just impossible because none of us is the savior. None of us knows exactly 
our chemical makeup, our biology, our past experiences, our, you know, our jobs, like there's just, it's so complex that we just don't even need to go there and it's not helpful, but we each get to feel and to experience and to be validated period. And we, we just, I think the problem comes when we try to cross over too much. We try to add too many ands or buts. And sometimes I think it's just innocently trying to relate. Like you said, you've done it before. I've done it before so many times where, you know, you brought up cancer. That's such an easy one where it's like, oh, well, my sister has cancer or, oh, you know, and I'm learning to slow down and to just be with that person. And what does it feel like to be them right now and not make it about me? While I don't think we need to feel shame if we've done that in the past, I love how um, someone that Brene loves as well, Maya Angelou, she says, when we know better, we do better. And that's that's a, a quote from my book because it's been one of the most powerful quotes for me because I am constantly learning, trying to get better just as we all are. And it's easy to get bogged down with like, oh man, and then I said this insensitive thing and then I did this. No, no, no. When you know better, you do better. You don't get to punish yourself for things you didn't know. And that's going to be a lifetime of learning. Talk about um, another part of the book, conviction to listen. I talk about equality in some different groups of people, some that I think are hot topics. And while I poured over how to write these exactly, because I understand there's a lot of people that it's very sensitive for understandably. So, um, I speak to equality and gender, race, sexual orientation. And I feel like with, with all of these groups, I've heard negatives on both sides, positives as well. But I, you know, I know people that, that, you know, they just, a movie comes out with a super strong female character and they don't want to see it because they feel like, Oh, there's a feminist agenda. And, you know, you know, as a, as a white male, it can be hard. I think sometimes to feel like I don't want to offend, but I also feel like I, I can't say anything without offending. And then I have friends who are black right now and they just are so hurt that their brothers and sisters won't just trust their experiences and, you know, friends that are gay, that they just want to be, they just, they want to just be able to, as a man, as a gay man, they want to just be able to hang out with their straight guy friends. Like it's not a big deal and not have these labels slapped. And I just, I see all these people hurting and all needing to be seen and all needing compassion. And I just think this conviction to just listen to each other goes, does more than anything else can right? I mean, listen, learn, and love Richard Osler, right? Just to listen, just to stop and listen, period. And just maybe hang our stuff on the coat rack behind us for a second and just be with that person and what they're experiencing. And it's not always easy, especially with some of these topics, but that chapter is dedicated to listening to those groups of people. And I think that's where equality comes from is everybody gets a space to talk. Every It's like, I used to teach second grade, you know? You sit in a circle, everybody gets a chance with the talking stick. Everybody gets to talk, you know? I remember the talking stick. <laughs> wow, that's buried way down there. I really like that, Julie. I was rereading a section of my own book last night. That's kind of weird to... <laughs> Go on Amazon Kindle and read your own book, but I did that the last couple of nights. And in chapter seven, I talk about listening, um, which is under the chapter of ministering to LGBTQ members, and it's exactly what you're sharing. And as I read reread that, I remember I've I wrote some things like I have never been to a a training an LDS training meeting in my lifetime where I was ever taught how to listen. And my point is, I don't think it's an attribute that's very valued in our culture and and taught how to do. And um, I call it one of the quieter attributes or one of the quieter gifts. And there's public gifts like public speaking that's that's seen and valued in our culture and needed. But often it's, and, and we can role model that because we can sit in a congregation and 
and watch somebody give a great talk, or we can watch general conference. And so that, that attributes role modeled and we can kind of see, but if you've actually got a really good listener that has that skill, it's difficult to watch that and role model it and develop within yourself. And if there's not training meetings for that and sort of role playing, it's a skill that I think it's part of preach my gospel. So we talk about it in the church. But that's why I'm glad you're writing about it, because I do believe that I remember I was rereading when I was called to be a YSA president, YSA bishop. <laughs> My brother, who was a stake president at the time, said to me, he said, you'll change more lives in the bishop's office than you will of the pulpit. And it was really good advice. And it was sort of talking about what's going to happen in these one-on-one -on -one conversations and I learned that the more I served in that assignment, I've been released for three or four years now, the more I, I shifted those interviews to listening. I think, you know, and I learned that often the very best thing I could do was listen. And the YSAs often knew without me suggesting what the right course of action was. They just need somebody to really sit with them and um, be engaged and listen. And, and at times then... A priesthood blessing would make more sense because I had a, a better feeling of the totality of their situation because I'd spent maybe in some cases multiple interviews to really get on their road and really understand. But anyway, I just I'm glad that's part of your book um, because I think it's it's something that in our LDS culture we probably need to do a better job on that. I've even maybe this is a little too cynical. I've labeled our classrooms at church, sometimes the best answer club, where the 10% that kind of have the best answers do most of the talking in core meeting or release society or Sunday school. And at times I need the best answer because those help me understand insights to the scriptures and how it can help me. But at times the 90% that are kind of sitting there that might have a question, but be too scared to ask or or share something real vulnerable, or just the ability to listen to a comment often can go a long ways. And that seems to be sometimes a little out of balance. And maybe you can't do that in a 45-minute meeting anyway, and you need to do that in ministering visits or other one-on-one -on -one experiences. So I'm glad that's part of your book and part of your mission, because I think it's needed. And I don't want to be too hard on men, but I, I did write this in the book. I think men um, need more work on this attribute than women. Um, that's been true of me as I'm still working on this attribute because I think we often just go into kind of fix-it verbal mode and often the very best thing we can do is never actually get in that mode um, and just sit with somebody in their story. More thoughts on that subject? Well, listening is something that I am working on every day. I am I'm one of those... I'm one of those 10% that I just always have something to say. I don't know that it's a good answer, <laughs> but I'm chatty. I always okay. have a lot to say. It is okay. It is okay. But I'm learning the power and learning to listen more. I'm the gospel doctrine teacher, one of the gospel doctrine teachers in my ward right now. And that's been one of the, the greatest things I've gained, I think, is being able to just listen and soak in all the amazing insights that people come up with that I never would have noticed before and and just I just think there's truth everywhere there's truth everywhere and it's up to us to open our minds to be able to to see it for what it is no matter who it comes from when when truth is presented the spirit witnesses it whether they're a part of the same church that you and I belong to or not. And I've experienced that from so many, when someone just speaks truth and it just hits you and you just know it's from God. It's an eternal principle. Talk about more about equality. Um, that's part of your book. I really think it comes back to listening. I have great compassion and understanding for what it's like to feel different. I can't say that I exactly understand what it's like to be blind or African-American or a lesbian. I can't say that 
but I've suffered enough to know what it feels like to be different. And that's all I need to have compassion for any group that needs that. And better yet, within that group, each of those individuals. You know, as a female, I don't know if this is a soapbox, but we're doing it, Richard. We're doing it. There's So I talked about Captain Marvel earlier. That movie came out and and I just, I heard a lot of of feelings about it, both good and bad in the, in the population of gender equality and the way that Captain Marvel was presented and she was too harsh as a woman. And, and I just have to say, I was just so dang glad she was wearing clothes and it was about her, about, she was smart and powerful. And I loved that. And I think that as far as gender is concerned, and I know that gender is a complex thing for a lot of your listeners. And so I'm going to talk from my limited view but where gender is concerned, we just need to, to allow each other to have strengths. And I think there are problems with, with gender equality. I think that um, sometimes when we try to lift women up, we end up belittling men by some of the things we say. And I don't think that's okay either. And I think that we have come a really long way. And those women, man, that plowed through those feminists in the beginning, they did incredible things. I think that racial equality. I think that we have a long way to go. I think we've come a long way too, but really what it is, is it's just to stop and listen to each other. And that's the equality. The equality doesn't mean we need to be the same and act the same and have the exact same roles. None of that. The equality is that we all have equal say at the table. We all get the talking stick. That's what equality means to me. I don't know if I've ever realized that till right now, but I think that's what I'm going with. I think it's the talking stick, you know? You each get a turn with it and you each get to have the opportunity to be witnessed, to be seen and to be listened to. I love that. I think of, for some reason, I'm thinking of this row of women in my home ward that are on the back row of Sunday school and we're not meeting now because of COVID that are older than me that um, I don't ever hear from. Um. I'm 60 um, this or next year I'm in my 60th year and I I thought of them because I've been in this ward for 20 years and I'm not sure I've ever heard them volunteer a comment and my guess is they have incredibly meaningful things to say and incredibly wonderful insights but this talking stick and it, maybe it's just not possible in that format. I don't want to put any pressure on gospel doctrine teachers like you that now you've got to take the talking <laughs> stick. And if you've got 45 people in your Sunday school class, you've got to make sure everybody contributes because that's not possible. But I do think everybody has a story and everybody has something to contribute. And, we, and it may not be exactly the same content. Someone may have a different feeling about a Bible story, a Book of Mormon story, or a different perspective on on something, and I think all those perspectives help us do better and and create a feeling of equality. I don't know what percent of the time in Sunday school men's voices um, are answering questions versus female voices. I don't know if, if we, I've ever tracked that in my mind, but I would guess more men would answer questions. I think sometimes past leadership gives men a platform in. Sunday school where men and women are meeting, where perhaps um, based on leadership, um, we look towards current or prior male leaders to often lead the discussion or their comments are more important or more valued. And, and I think everybody's comments are needed and everybody's questions are needed. Often it takes a little courage to ask a question on something one doesn't understand or or see the same as everybody. So I think the power of equality that you're teaching and sharing, and that's just one example. There's lots of examples outside of just LDS church culture, family culture, um, the work environment. There's so many places that this issue exists that we need to work on. And the answer most certainly isn't to belittle men, like what I just spoke to. I mean, I have a little boy I want him to have strong male role models. We're not supposed to be louder than the other, no matter what's happened in the past. You know, we have some ugly chapters in our history. 
both with race, with sexual orientation, with gender, we have not always treated each other kindly. And there are things that still exist. I don't pretend like it's obviously not fixed, right? We're dealing with a lot of that today. But it's not to yell louder than the other. We just, we each get to talk. We each get to talk. And I, I hope that that my son will have strong male leaders that also get to talk because they're powerful too. Their mission and their purpose is just as important as mine as a female, but we need each other. We need each other because we both have huge roles to play and we get to decide what that looks like. And we decide that by listening to each other. I agree with that. And I think, um, I'm reminded of my wife and I went to a state conference, a YSA state conference for our dear friends, um, Mike and Jane Metcalf, that were being sustained. Um, He was being sustained as the YSA state president about three years ago, and they both spoke. And I was impressed with Mike's talk, but I was equally impressed, probably, I don't know, more impressed, but with Jane Metcalf's talk. They live in our home ward and are still in that assignment because of what an incredibly strong woman she is. And the thought came to my mind. I actually thought of the young men in that YSA stake and how helpful it would be for them to have that kind of a role model woman as I wish she had a better tile in the YSA stake president's wife. (laughs) Um, That's another kind of cultural subject, but because she's an equal calling in many regards in that YSA stake. So I think sometimes that um, men need, it's really good for them to have strong role model women and men, and same with women, that help bring a balance and a perspective there. So I've just thought, and she has been a great, done a great job in that stake, has been a great example in her own family. So I love um, Sharon Eubank as another um, LDS woman leader that is, somebody I deeply admire and, and role model, try to role model um, coming more like her and more like the Savior as she helps me be more like the Savior as I listen to her ministry and the things she teaches. Any more thoughts on equality that you'd like to share with our listeners? No, I just think it comes back to, I hate to, to uh, kick a dead horse, but just seeing each other, just getting in closer, having that compassion, connecting with each other. We're not so different. We have different experiences, but we're all children of God. The race isn't against each other. We're all headed towards the same place, and we know who wins. That's pretty powerful. You just said, "I don't." You just I believe it. The cough, you know. <laughs> um, I don't know if you can repeat that word for word, or just the same concept. Well, I think I stole a little bit out of a BYU address I heard once, but there was a talk given about comparison. Are you pulling it out? No. <laughs> okay, I thought you had it right there with you. I do He's have pulling out a paper. I, I do have something I might share. No, there was that talk about comparison. Oh, and it's the title's on the tip of my tongue, but man, it stuck with me. And he talked about the race is against sin. It's not against each other. And we know who wins in the end. It's all about staying in your lane. We all have these separate, you know, you think of a runner. You run, don't you? Aren't you a runner? I do. I walk more than run, but yeah, yes. Yeah, you once ran. <laughs> exactly. We're all in different lanes, and it's we're all headed towards the same destination. And, and just because someone's lane looks different than our, you know, the more that we look over, it's like when I'm driving. If I'm not careful, especially when I was 16, and I'd look before I'd turn, I'd also turn my steering wheel that way and start running into the other person's lane. And it got me distracted from staying in my lane. And I think that's a problem. And and we need to be focused on our own lane because we're all going to the same place. And so when we, when we don't create safe spaces for equality to exist, for everyone to be able to hold that walking stick, sometimes I think it's because we're getting distracted and we're looking at maybe how helping someone else feel equal could negatively impact us or how it could, I don't know. It's like we take it personally instead of just validating someone's pain period. Like we talked about, we just, we feel this need to compare it to, to us. We don't need to do that. We can stay in our own lane and recognize, recognize the hurdles in someone else's. 
And we're all going to the same place. It's the end. We know the Savior wins. We know that we're all going to God. We know he wants every single last one of us. Whether, you know, no matter how beaten and muddy and wherever he finds us, he wants all of us. We don't need to be concerned about trying to to merge into other people's lanes where, where frankly, we don't belong and, and we're not meant to be. I think of um, Christ's ministry where he, um, the miracle of feeding the multitudes. And one of the layers of that, I think it happened at least twice, is just that there's room for, there's no scarcity of salvation or exaltation. Um, me and my journey and our, and our family's journey to return to our heavenly parents isn't conditional on excluding somebody else. There's no scarcity in that. There's room for everybody just as you taught in that last segment. And when we look at it that way and when we go to our doctrine that we're all the same human family and that person who cut us off that we say what a jerk is actually our spiritual brother or sister from the pre-mortal life that have the same heavenly parents, it kind of gets, it's more likely to get us out of the us or them narrative. I The thing I was going to pull here is very similar to what you just said. It's by Thomas Merton. Um I believe he's a Catholic priest. Our job is to love others without stopping to inquire whether or not they are worthy. That is not our business, and in fact, it's nobody's business. What we are asked to do is love, and love itself will render both ourselves and our neighbors worthy. So I love that's very consistent with what you just taught us. It reminds me of a quote by Byron Katie. She says something like, there are three kinds of business, mine, yours, and God's. And often when we are feeling upset and discomfort, uncomfortable in life, it's when we are, we're outside of our business and we're in one of the others that we don't belong. And, I, and that's where compassion comes in. You know, you said something about salvation. There is no, like, limit. Mm-hmm. Scarcity. There's no scarcity. Yes, thank you. And I think, I think that's the same with compassion. There's so many things that maybe we can have too much of. Compassion is not one of them. There is no hard edge to compassion. Right? You I think agree. about where, where is there too much compassion? If it feels like too much compassion, I think it's important we stop and look at it. And has it turned to something else and it's no longer compassion? Because sometimes a compassionate choice is, is letting consequences follow someone so that they can have a second chance. That's compassion. But there's no, there's no hard edge there. You don't ever have to stress out about having too much compassion. I don't think the Savior did. I think he was the hero of, of compassion. He lived and breathed it. I wrote then that line, there's no hard edge. I love the visual of that, Julie. Talk about um, the bracelet that you've, is part of your efforts. So I'm wearing a bracelet right now. This is the original ICU bracelet I was given. And I was given by a friend who has been on here, Brittany Coyado, who I know you know. Brittany's awesome. She is awesome. She's babysitting my kids right now so I could be here. She's extra awesome. <laughs> Way to go, Brittany. Yeah, yeah. She's doing the tough work right now. Uh, she gave me, we were introduced by our therapist in a very HIPAA approved way. And we met at a park and we just became very dear friends. We had a lot of similarities and, and just our souls. We saw each other pretty quick there. And about a year later, she gave me this bracelet that said, I see you on it with just basically the end. And she has one too. And it's basically just this understanding of like, I get you, I see you. And so we can even just shoot each other a text saying, I see you, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm in the middle of this and this is being hard. And it's like, girl, I see you. And I see you as just, I am present with you. I, I notice you, I witness your life. There's a quote in the movie, shall we dance that I love. And she talks about how your life will not go unnoticed because I will notice it. Your life will not be unwitnessed because I will be your witness. And I think that's that's the message of I see you right there. And so that was kind of when I started this podcast, that was the phrase that I couldn't get out of my head as I as I really wrestled with what I wanted to talk about, what I wanted the theme be, and what is it that I have to give and want to give. And I think it's that message of I see you. And that so this bracelet is not only a reminder to me that I'm seen by friends, close friends like Brittany, by God. You know, maybe if I am in a in a church setting and something said that doesn't quite resonate with my spirit, just that feeling of that, like God sees me and it's okay. It's okay if I don't understand everything right now. It's okay to have some questions to take to him. 
But also as a reminder, just like at the end of the 12 step program, the 12th step is to, to help others, right? That's a rough way to say it, but that's what you, you go and you help others. And that keeps you in recovery. This is a reminder to me to do that for other people. What I needed, the things that say, make sure I am seeing the checker at Walmart and the person at the post office and the kid across the street that I'm remembering that that's, that's my duty. That's my calling. And so with the, the book, there's also going to, there's also a bracelet that people are pre-ordering now, which is pretty special. And it was important to me that it was one that men and women could wear. So it's manly enough yet, not too manly, I think <laughs> so. that, um, because we don't, cause I don't even, it's, it's, we're all in this together. This, this it's never felt right to have it be just female or just LDS or to, I couldn't do that. And even though in some ways it's, it's so good to want to focus on your audience if you could. And we've certainly, we've certainly found an audience with the podcast about, you know, about what age listens to it. I've been surprised though. It's, there's been a lot of men. I thought maybe it would just be women because women, we love our feelings and we love to talk about feelings. At least that's our stereotype, but there's a lot of men needing to be seen and needing that message in their own lives. If I, so if I buy the book, um, do I get the bracelet as part of the book purchase or as an add-on purchase? So Amazon just has the book right now. Okay. And Cedar Fort has the book and the bracelet, which you can buy as a bundle to get it cheaper, or you can buy them separate. And that's all, I just have all the options on my website. That's kind of how we decided to do it. So it's one stopping place. It'll get you straight to Amazon. It'll get you straight to Cedar Fort. And there's a, there's a pre 15, 15% off code there for Cedar Fort as well for pre-sales. And tell our listeners again, your website. Yeah, absolutely. It's julieleespeaks.com. Talk about what it's like to launch a book during COVID as kind of our last segment. Yeah, it's been special. It's been confusing. You know, if so many things in my life have not turned out how I would have expected, and I think a lot of people feel that way. I know I'm not alone in that. This book, you know, you think of yourself writing a book, and I don't know, for me, I thought like, you know, maybe there'll be some like public fanfare where I can, you know, I can sign it for people at a table with a poster, you know, that's where your brain goes. Right. And I don't know if that's a vain part of us or what, but you, you have this vision of maybe how it'll be. And with COVID, everything's different. I don't know how your book is working, but I don't know that I'm going to see my book in a bookstore very soon. People aren't going to bookstores a lot. They're just opening up. And books are on back order because they're behind. Everything is online right now. And as someone who really thrives with connecting with people in real life, and, you know, I see you, I want to see you in real life. It's been a little bit of a challenge for me mentally to have this opportunity come when it did. And yet I have to believe that there's purpose in that, that there's purpose for a book like mine, a book like yours to be coming out at a time when isolation is so much of a bigger topic right now than it was two years ago when I started this podcast. And I felt it so boldly because I knew I needed other people the way that we're all needing each other now because we're, we're a lot more physically isolated than we've ever been. So it's been weird to write this book and to, and to publish it during this time, but it's also felt incredibly meaningful and meant to be. So I'm happy to do it. I just hope I, I hope I can... I hope it reaches the people it's supposed to. Yeah, meant to be. I think it takes really wonderful faith. Thanks for being on the podcast, Julie. Great job. Great insights and really thoughtful perspective on so many issues that we need to talk about. Any closing thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners? I see you. (laughs) I know that a lot of people are struggling right now. Maybe people that haven't struggled before. Maybe that's new for you to struggle and to feel kind of alone in your head. And I just want you to know that I see you and that we're going to get through this, myself included. I need to remind myself of that. Sometimes there's a lot of unknown in the future and there's a lot of hurt and pain in the world with not easy answers But I just want to say that I truly believe that the antidote, 
the greatest antidote to your pain and to mine is first the Savior, Jesus Christ. And second, acting as he would, being his hands and getting as close as you can to people right now. I guess I'll say that since we have our six, six feet apart issues right now that we have to deal with, but having compassion for the people around you and allowing them to extend, extend the same compassion to you, being willing to reach out and connect with others. I think that it's going to make all the world of difference, our ability to sustain and enrich our relationships right now as we are moving moving forward in an unknown future. I think that there's a lot of light ahead if we'll, if we'll continue those relationships and we'll treat people the way the Savior would. I like you. Fr- you have come up with some really wonderful nuggets. I think that's why you're a good speaker and writer. There's light ahead. There's so much hope in everything you say. So Julie Lee, thank you for being on the podcast. Once again, I encourage our listeners to go to Julie's website, julieleespeaks.com. You can find her podcast there. There's over 80 episodes. You can find um, the ways to buy her book. Um, This book, again, is called I See You, How Compassion and Connection Save Lives. The forwards by Tim Ballard, um, OUR, Operation Underground Road. A couple of our family members are involved in that wonderful organization. And I'd like to thank you, our listeners, to for listening. hope the volume's been a little better today. And we appreciate all you that listen to this podcast, that share it with people. Um, it's really you, our listeners, and these guests that vulnerably come on and share their stories to make the podcast go. So this is Richard Osler, your host, signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.